Hey, have you heard about our all-new free PDF that you can download? It's called Five Ways Unresolved Trauma May Be Derailing Your Relationship. And if you're a couple that has done the date nights and attended the relationship retreats and learned the communication skills, read the latest books on marriage, but you still find yourself stuck in a loop of pain and frustration, then this PDF is for you. If one moment everything is fine and the next moment everything feels crazy and that is familiar, I encourage you to go to restoringthesoul.com, scroll down, fill in your email, and get the free copy of our all-new PDF, Five Ways Unresolved Trauma May Be Derailing Your Relationship. You're going to find it very helpful. Most people feel like they read this and they wonder if we've been reading their mail. They say, this is us. It's going to be of help. Check it out now at restoringthesoul.com. Sexuality has always been, um, I think, the primary means, not the exclusive, but the primary means that evil uses to distort, to damage, to in many ways degrade the nature of what it means to be made in the image of God. So if that's accurate, then sexual brokenness needs to be seen in the larger purview of, of what it means to engage God as human. So how do we begin the process of healing from past sexual abuse? How do we deal with the pain, the hurt, and the emotional brokenness that has taken a hold of our lives? And how are we able to move on? Dan Allender says in his book, The Wounded Heart, the journey involves bringing our wounded heart before God. Welcome to Restoring the Soul a podcast dedicated to helping you close the gap between what you believe and what you actually experience. I'm your producer, Brian Beatty. Thank you for listening. We're pleased today to feature Michael's conversation with our good friend, Dr. Dan Allender. Dr. Allender is a pioneer of a unique and innovative approach to trauma and abuse therapy. Now, for over 30 years, the Allender Theory has brought healing and transformation to hundreds of thousands of lives by bridging the story of the gospel and the stories of trauma and abuse that mark so many. Now, on today's edition of Restoring the Soul, Michael and Dan discuss such topics as why every one of us is sexually broken, whether or not we've experienced sexual abuse or specific sexual harm. We'll also talk about the major differences between man and woman, male and female, as we're made in God's image, and the category of lust as desire gone mad, and why it's crucial to understand lust in terms of both relief and revenge. Dr. Allender also co-hosts the Allender Center's weekly podcast with Rachel Clinton Chen, which has had more than 2 million downloads. The link for the podcast is in the show notes. So now, without any further delay, here's your host, Michael John Cusick. Dr. Dan Allender, thank you very much for making time to talk with me today. Welcome to the program. A delight to be with you, Michael. Our relationship goes back, I counted the years, 29 years since uh, <laughs> we first met in Akron, Ohio at one of your Wounded Heart conferences. Wow. And then wow. uh, two or three years later, I was uh, gifted with studying with you and then training under you. So it's really, really good to be talking with you. Well, I, thank you for uh, aging us both. Yeah, indeed. You've <clears throat> devoted you know, over 40 years now as a minister, as a psychologist, and as a theologian to really working with writing and teaching about how people change and transformation and at the end of our conversation, I want to get a little bit more into how you've evolved in your thinking to include inner healing and warfare and things like that. But um, would it be fair to say that, that most of your career has been uh, around the area of sexual brokenness and the soul? It has. Uh, I think that in one sense, the more particular way of putting it uh, certainly has been sexual abuse. Uh, but I noted right from the beginning that Evil seemed to delight 
uh, and bringing about harm to our sense of what it means to be a man or a woman, and that nothing, nothing affects the human heart more uh, than our sexuality. And so in that sense, sexuality has always been um, I think the primary means, not the exclusive, but the primary means that evil uses to distort, to damage, to in many ways degrade the nature of what it means to be made in the image of God. So if that's accurate, then sexual brokenness needs to be seen in the larger purview of of what it means to engage God as human, to engage others as human. So in that, yes, absolutely, brokenness has been at the core. And though you've worked with sexual abuse, especially in your practice and in your teaching, and in fact, the very first time I met you was at a sexual abuse seminar in, gosh, 1989, when I began to enter into my own story, um, and my life was forever changed by that. But you also talk about, because I've, I've heard you say this dozens of times, that we're all sexually broken. You don't have to have experienced incest or molestation or other kind of sexual violations to be among the sexually broken. No, I, I mean, let's just state it as bluntly as possible. Um, our sexuality is always deviant from what God intended. Now, how you know, severe that struggle will be, there's always going to be an element to which uh, our inner and outer world struggles with the reality of conformity to his righteousness. So if that's accurate, again, nothing touches the human heart. I mean, we know from research currently that, you know, when sexual images of any sort uh, are put before male or female, the brain lights up in a way that it lights up for nothing else. I mean, nothing else. It doesn't light up for winning the lottery. It doesn't light up for the, uh, you know, the return of, of, of your dearest friend that you haven't seen for years. You know, any level of, of, uh, exciting uh, excitement uh, of of the brain. Nothing parallels the role of sexuality, and if that's the case, then it's back to that simple premise that um, our our common struggle opens the door to a deeper conversations with one another. So, how do you respond to the man, and, and also I'm sure the woman, but but probably more often men who comes to you in your office or who you're just having a casual conversation with and they say, well, what do you mean? I'm not sexually broken. I'm not addicted to porn. I don't, I haven't had affairs. Well, you know, if your comparison is another human being, uh, you always have the opportunity uh, for some form of decimation or some form of self-righteousness. I mean, uh, you know, you're in a, you know, let's just again, be very blunt. The bell shaped curve, pisses me off. Um, you know, I mean, it's true with regard to height, it's regard to intelligence. Uh, and in some ways, I think it's rather true with regard to even this whole concept of, of maturity. Um, and most of us are pretty much in the middle and maybe one standard deviation above the norm. But that leaves a lot of people who are a lot lower, a lot higher than whomever, wherever we are. Uh, but we compare ourselves not to one another. We compare ourselves to Eden. We compare ourselves fundamentally to Jesus. And when that comparison's made, um, everyone uh, shows uh, a significant, um, well, realm for maturity. Let's go back to uh, the question of what exactly is sexuality, because I've always taught that uh, sexuality is not about what set of genitals we have or what kind of chromosomes we're assigned, but rather this idea that you referred to about the image of God. We're right in Genesis 126 and 127. God says, let us, there's the plurality of the Trinity, right? Make, make man in our image and then let us create them male and female. So there's something inherent to our sexuality that's deeper than genitality. Can you comment on that? Well, yeah, I, I, I would agree with you so fully that, you know, where we return to is the foundation of our very creation and that God has pleasured himself to create difference uh, and difference that's fast and not just fast male versus female, 
but vast within this whole realm of what it means to be a man and what it means to be a woman. Uh, and, you know, in some ways, uh, let me deviate from perhaps where you were going. But, you know, you know, we've got so many cultural um, uh, in many ways, suffocating points about what it means to be a man, what it means to be a woman from, you know, w- women wear makeup in a particular way. Men don't wear makeup. And I'm not commending that men begin wearing makeup. But I also would, would press to say even that category is so culturally constructed that what we conceive as male and female uh, never gets fully defined in the scriptures. Never. In other words, we've got to do theological work that isn't culturally bound to do the work of determining what's the nature of what it means to be male and female. But whatever it means, he meant for there to be a difference. And that difference is meant to uh, give a taste and fragrance to the complexity and richness uh, of the God who created us in his image. And so remaining true to the biblical text, and yet in a, in a pluralistic postmodern culture, how do you speak about maleness and femaleness and that vast difference? Well, I, I, I think, honestly, this is an arena of, uh, of a lot of change, even in the last five years for me, thinking in terms of how I might have named it. Uh, I, I, I probably would have felt that there was something about the nature of strength that was there with regard to maleness and something of tenderness that was there with regard to femaleness. And I still hold that to be true. But I know so many men whose tenderness exceeds what many women tend to offer. And I certainly know strength in women that uh, exceeds uh, what often is found. So I would say both are meant, strength and tenderness are meant to be part of both of who we are as male, as female. So in that sense, I would go back to the category that there is one core uniqueness, and that is women give birth, men don't. Uh, which means that there is a, a difficult beginning category is to say women are more like God. Um, women are more like God and they have the capacity to create in a way that a man cannot. Uh, and that is to create from the very literally sinews right from the cellular standpoint of their being, which is why I think there is so much misogyny, so much uh, and again, to say the word hatred of women is not untrue, but what I would say is envy of women, uh, envy of the of the intimacy, envy of the creative power and the imagination and the tenderness, so that when we begin to name that a woman uh, for good Lord for millennia um, have been uh, abused in the way that you know, we're seeing currently in the 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 uh, hashtag Me Too, um, the Weinstein, and that you start looking at almost this long history of powerful men, um, the idea that women are far more susceptible to abuse. Um, and I don't think that can be simply called lust. Uh, I think that has to be seen as more violent uh, than just desire gone mad. Uh, it is desire gone mad with a vengeance against. Uh, and that's been part of my work over many, many, many decades is, is again, just to ponder why is there such misuse of women uh, far more than there is so-called misuse of men. You're, you're so uh, I'm so glad you brought this up, because especially in today's culture where you know, every day we're reading in the news about another man or another handful of men dropping like flies. And of course, my story is one of sexual exploitation of women and sexual harassment of women. Um, and the antidote is is really humility and stepping into and through shame, which I definitely want to talk about. Um, but so many men, since we're talking about the misuse of women and misogyny, um, don't know what to do about that. And, and at best, oftentimes in the Christian community, 
we use euphemisms like working on your purity or, uh, you know, someone had a moral failure, which, of course, can be, you know, not serving the poor is a moral failure. But but how do we how do we step beyond, quote, working on purity and step into our stories and our brokenness in a way where not only we would be transformed and restored, but that that would be part of the restoration of the world and the kingdom come? Well, it's a, it's a beautiful question, and the question itself is so indicative of the nature of the work that you do with people, um, and that is the, the assumption that there is more to our struggle than the fact that we struggle with lust. And again, I, I've tried to say that I think lust is desire gone mad. Um, it's a kind of consumption, a a, a rage to fill uh, uh, that core emptiness that exists within all of us. That's, I, I never want that to be minimized. That's always a factor in our exploitation, not just of women, but our exploitation of ourselves, our exploitation of the earth. I mean, all forms of misuse rather than honor. So if we contrast misuse violation to the word honor, um, why are we dishonoring ourselves, others, uh, uh, the earth and ultimately God. Well, I, I, I always come back to the second category of anger. So Jesus talks about sin in the category of lust and anger. What's the anger involved in pornography? Well, it, it's the joy of degradation. And, and that is a very, I mean, we're at least as a culture closer to being able to acknowledge the powerful role of lust. Um, but we're still deeply reluctant to face that there is a part of us that wants to make someone pay. So in that sense, uh, to to make a shift that will feel too severe for most people, uh, but to say, no, I mean, for a man to face the way he misuses women requires him to deal with his first woman. Um, and that's not your first date. It's not your first sexual encounter. It's your mother. So when we open the door to the complexity, particularly of a boy with his mother, that, uh, you know, the pushback I get uh, to this day uh, is like, don't you mess with my mother. Uh, You know, I mean, you can look at war films and see men dying on the battlefield. Uh, Seldom uh, and maybe never do they cry out for their fathers. Um, and so the relationship we have with our mother uh, is intimate, uh, it's complex, uh, and it's highly, oh my God, highly defended. So to begin that process to say, no, every man engaging pornography is to some degree, and again, that's back to the bell-shaped curve, to some degree, some way less, some way more, but everyone on that continuum is addressing something with regard to their mother. Uh, and so that warfare, that war of what will I do with the younger parts of me that feel uh, embedded, uh, feel in many ways enmeshed or feel lost and abandoned with regard to my relationship with my mother that becomes the place where you begin with misogyny in the first core relationship, and that's mother-son. Yeah. Wow. There's so many questions and, and directions I could go with that, but the first thing that comes to my mind is that why in the world would we begin to face that unless there is a good and merciful God that's better than we even imagine, with whom we can come before and say, I misuse women, or I have been misused by a man or another woman, um, and I can bring the very worst of who I am, my shame, even this joy in degrading others, which is a brutal, brutal truth to admit, right? But that's the, the, the paradox of of Christianity in the heart of God is that when we when we face the ugliness, we see who we really are uh, and we see who God really is. Well, uh, it, again, I don't carry a gun. Uh, uh, I don't own any, a gun. Any, anymore, right? Well, anymore. <laughs> no, but, uh, you know, somebody cut me off uh, on the road the other day 
uh, and I sort of put my face up against my window and mouthed words that if it had been, uh, you know, if it had been captured uh, by an iPhone, uh, something of my current work would be highly questioned. Uh, and I'm going, what in the name of God is going on? Like you got inconvenienced for three seconds uh, and you're willing to virtually risk your reputation and your presence in the kingdom of God for what? Uh, and in some ways, uh, that that level of I wanted that particular car and driver to pay. And it wasn't just for the insult or for, you know, the, the, the mere small threat that they posed by cutting me off. Uh, in some ways, it was the voluminous rage I've not addressed over scores uh, of, of smaller, bigger uh, insults. Uh, just again, go back to one core category. We all know we're angry. Um, how angry, uh, and particularly white males, angry. Um, and so when you begin to frame that and to say, let's, let's take the awareness of what scripture says and what we know about ourselves into the realm uh, of exploitation uh, of, of women, it becomes a very, as you put it brilliantly, humbling. But again, shame divides, but eventually shame exasperates uh, to a point where um, you literally have such a deeply divided inner and outer world. Uh, then I think that sense of you, you are far from whom you were meant to be and who you were most meant to be with. Uh, I think in some ways, shame is what drives us back to God. I'm saying this uh, <clears throat> not to be funny. And as you talk about the, the as you so, talk about the road rage, I'm going, yeah, I get that. And then I want to say, gosh, Dan, I, I thought you would be beyond that by now. And I say that because it's so cool to hear you. You're 62, 63 years old. I, what I wish I, I'm I'm well into my 65. OK, congratulations. Uh, so we all have this illusion that someday, you know, as we get older or something, that these core struggles inside of us, especially the things that we don't seem to have any control over, our reflexes, our impulses, that that, you know, thank God is an ongoing process so that the pressure is not on us to have to somehow resolve that. But how have you come to a place where you're both horrified at what you've done in describing it now, and yet there's a non-judgmental acceptance and a compassion that I hear uh, about that as well. How do you walk that line? Well, I, I think, be it well or not, I, I've done a lot of pondering uh, of myself and others. You know, my job is pondering, uh, reading. I get to read a lot. Uh, people pay me to read. People pay me to write and think. Uh, and in that sense, I get to just sort of do what a lot of people don't have the privilege to do, and that's to sit back and go, what in the name of all that is good, true, and holy would provoke such a response in that context? And uh, it's not excuse-making by any means. Uh, it's, it's a, it's a, a willingness to say, look, I get cut off. Look, driving in Seattle is not uh, a piece of cake. Uh, so it's not like it's rare. Why would this in this moment provoke me? And seldom is it the event itself. It's more what's stored, uh, what's stored from that hour before, two hours, that day, several days. Uh, and a lot of it, at least for me, has to do with entitlement, uh, which is, I think, the understructure for all forms of narcissism. Uh, a kind of, I've done what should be done and look at what my life still is. Why am I not richer? Why am I not more famous? Why am I not more happy? Um, why does my world not work? Um, and that, you know, as naive and perhaps uh, as um, immature as it may seem, and I do believe it is, there's a part of me that feels the same as you to go at 65, having been in Jesus literally for a little bit more than four decades, I would never have thought uh, that my wars would be as broken as they are.
so that standing back and being able to go, no, there were two or three things that had happened that day that I had not addressed. Uh, and I can argue because I was busy or because many things were intervening. Uh, but it basically boiled down to uh, I'd taken some blows that I didn't feel like were fair or honorable uh, and I didn't address them well in the moment or after. Uh, and so, you know, the poor person who cut me off got my face of rage, uh, got the, the cumulative work of that day uh, in, in, in a way in which I don't even know if they saw my face. And I'm grateful that at this point, I'm, I'm unaware <laughs> that anyone videoed me. But we do live in that world where you go, I don't know how even mature it is that I struggled as much as the, the thought that, oh my gosh, uh, if this had been in a more public setting and somebody had taken my rage and put it onto a camera, um, uh, people would be doing just what I'm doing right now, shaking their head, going, I, I knew he was such a fake, such a poser, such a, and it's like, in that moment, uh, it's worse than being a poser. I'm, I'm, I'm a, I'm a contradiction to what it is I will long to be. And yet I'd go back to the framework of grace. Um, I'm also revealing what it is that Paul put words to when he says that he's the chief of sinners. Uh, and I make no claim to be the chief, but I'm not far behind him. Given that, uh, then how will I tenderly, because I don't believe Jesus engages my rage with rage. Um, how will he tenderly uh, engage those very, very young, broken parts that really want the world to be magical uh, and and resolvable uh, and uh, and on my side? Um, how will he tend to that? Will I let him tend to it? Will I name that I need him to tend to those young parts of my heart? Um, that that I think begins to change rather than just to flagellate myself for being so foolish or to further blame um, Seattle drivers uh, to self-justify. I mean, those are really ultimately our only two passages, blame others or blame ourselves. And when we choose uh, to mitigate blame by at least saying, I need help. Uh, I need help right now. Uh, I think that changes um, the flavor uh, of what our hearts are, are available to and certainly change how Jesus is free to engage. Can we go back to this idea of uh, dealing with our wounds from our mother? And um, last year at the Restoration of the Heart Conference that you did with your buddy John Eldridge, um, you spoke pretty vulnerably, well, not pretty, very vulnerably, uh, about your relationship with your mother and the wounds. And I heard you speak about some of that uh, 29, 25, 20 yeah. years ago. And, and yet you had gone to a whole new level in your own life of understanding that. So for the man who is kind of on the edges of dealing with their story, can you talk a little bit about your process of uh, what you've had to do to deal with that relationship and how that's affected you today? Yeah. And let, let me start by saying uh, my mom died this last March uh, and it it was as all death. It, it is an aberration and a violation of what God intended. So in that sense, there's always a sense of something is wrong in death itself. Uh, but where my mom and I had come to be, um, it, it was once that said it can also be said it was a good death, um, a death in which um, by the the finish of my mom's life, there was much that we had talked through, much that we had engaged, a whole lot that was left for only what eternity can enable the two of us to be able to engage. So I'm not wanting to overstate it, but I, I was able to deeply grieve and honor uh, and let go and surrender 
um, my very deeply broken mom. And to name a sentence or two about that relationship, um, my, my mom uh, depended upon me as her solace, uh, her source of, of strength, of um, I, I was her confidant. Uh, in many ways, I was her lover, um, far more so than what uh, was true with regard to my stepfather. Yes. So the the reality of being a what I refer to and others refer to as a triangulated relationship. I was in an intimate bond in which I was more her surrogate spouse than I was her son created massive complications, particularly given that my mom fits if our audience has a sense of what I'm saying without going into great detail. She she fit very well the term borderline personality disorder, um, but without the specific specifics of that to say she was highly seductive. Um, in some ways, she was a very young little girl, a uh, very sexualized little girl. And on the other hand, uh, could be uh, – brutal, cruel, uh, and deeply distancing. So, and that could all be in two minutes. Um, the the nature of that kind of unpredictability of arousal, uh, of punitive violence, but also of weeping that requires me to hold her and and soothe her and comfort her. Uh, Let's just say that there's a whole lot of people hearing this who would say, oh, my God, that sounds awful. It's nothing like my mom. And that's part of the complication of my story. Right. Story has a lot of extremity in many areas. The reality, however, is that all of us are, are in a war of intimacy and individuation. I mean, just to put it in those blunt terms, the more intimate we are with others, the more we seem to give up individuation. And what I mean by individuation is the capacity to choose and be who you are. But the more we choose that, then there's the price, on the other hand, of a loss of of connectedness. So, you know, you can be who your mom wants you to be and be pretty close to her, but you lost your soul. You gained your soul, but you lost your mom. So that that's the tension I was in at a very volatile level pretty much every second, let alone minute. Most people are at least hour today. Uh, so in that sense, they're at a different level of, uh, of extremity. But, but in that, uh, the weight of pressure of bearing her soul and the sense of what do I do with the amount of arousal and need I feel for her, she feels for me, parallels oh my goodness to the nth degree the effects of sexual abuse grooming uh touch uh relational engagement that feels powerful and yet also nauseating all that's going on and you know for me being able to go oh my gosh in in some ways uh, i i've uh, i can say with incredible integrity I have seldom ever struggled with pornography. Um, and, and people kind of come back and said, but you, you're, you say you're sexually broken. You don't struggle with pornography. And the answer is no, not much because, uh, you know, as an 11, 12 year old boy, my mother took me first to a, a, a strip club called the Moulin Rouge and to, far darker strip clubs than that. Uh, and I saw my mother in various stages of undress through most of my life. I remember hooking and unhooking her bras as a seven, eight-year-old boy. Um, in that sense, pornography always provoked in me a sense of being erotically arrayed in the presence of my mother. So, I, I mean, it's, it's heartbreaking to say that. But on the other hand, she has always been a kind of prophylactic against, uh, 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 you know, the power of a visual eroticism. So as you begin to name what's the nature of the relationship and how did sexuality get played out, uh, I always go back to this core assumption, unless there was true love between your mother and father, true love, meaning true delight, true honor, and the capacity um, to 
to to be restored to one another when there was failure. Unless there was love, then you can almost be assured there was a drainage uh, of some uh, of the war with intimacy on you as a child or at least someone in your family as a child. Uh, so the issue of triangulation is huge across the border in most in most families because most families do not have a mother, father, a husband, wife who love one another with true delight, honor and great capacity for restoring rupture. So if all that's accurate. Then we go back to that fundamental point that we are at war with the core first woman in our lives. And that's been an ongoing process for you. Thank you for sharing all that, by the way. Um, that wasn't one therapy session. That wasn't reading your own book and some, <laughs> somehow, you know, figuring it all out. That is a, that is a process of, uh, tell me what that process has been like over what span of time. Well, uh, I, I would say minimally, uh, I probably didn't even begin to address some of the implications of this until I first met Larry Crabb back in about 1975, 76. Um, but yet the rage and then the intimate resolution of that rage with my mom. I mean, it didn't take a lot to open the door to the reality that this is a pretty screwed up relationship. Uh, but then to actually take that and to say it shaped how you engaged women, that took a lot longer. But I looked at the track record of my very broken sexual history with women, and it wasn't – it didn't take a lot of labor to basically take that one little flashlight and begin to go, oh, my goodness – what heartache got lived out here? What violence got lived out here? Uh, but then the harder work, even though it sounds so on one level pathetic, was um, it, it actually shapes something of your inner world. Yes. It actually shapes something of your own identity, your sense of who you are in the world. It actually shaped how you engage God. I mean, it's still affecting who I am in a way in which my heart cries out, Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus. May there be, and there will be one day, full, complete, glorious restoration. So that framework uh, is an evolving, uh, and, and put in a little bit more technical terms, it's an evolving hermeneutic. It's an evolving way of reading oneself. And hermeneutics, as you know, is the study of how we read, how we study what we're reading. And that process of going, um, you know, as, as my daughters are, two of them are now in their 30s, uh, conversations we're having now, you know, decades later about me as a father of them as young teenagers and teenagers. Oh, my gosh. Hmm. It is a humbling gift to have children who are articulate and honest uh, uh, about the reality of how the shadow of my mother played out even in my fathering of my children. One can be suffused in shame uh, or one can somehow be immersed uh, in, in the goodness of what it means to be forgiven. But in being forgiven – we don't erase the harm. We come to engage it with new eyes and a far more tender heart. So I want to just summarize what I hear you saying, maybe to address the question I'm imagining somebody might be asking, especially a man who's dealing with um, pornography or uh, sexual sin or some kind of sexual brokenness that's hidden or that maybe has just come out and they're not sure they want to plunge into this pool. You know, they just want to bounce their eyes and get more accountability. Yep. Um, why bother? And what I'm hearing is uh, that our story that's broken, that initial first relationship with the woman, our mother, all the ways that that plays out, as well as all of the other wounding that comes to us in life and all of the warfare and all the lies that if we don't deal with that, um, we will be diminished and inhibited 
in our capacity to flourish as we were meant to and to be able to, let me use a very evangelical term, glorify God and receive love from God and to live beloved and to, to, to be able to have our soul rest. Uh, amen to amen. Uh, if we can just say it uh, as well as what you just put words to. Um, I, I don't want to have to grow any more than to be able to make my world work. Uh, but when I realize my world's not going to work if I'm as mature as Jesus, because <laughs> his world did not work as we would normally use that phrase. No one was more mature. Uh, and he still uh, is despised uh, and provokes rage uh, and literally goes to the cross. Yes, there's a redemptive purpose, but it, the way he loved prior to that called forth something from others that uh, simply goes beyond what, what any of us feel is reasonable uh, or applicable to, to, to living a so-called real life. Last year, Dan, you wrote uh, a new book. You have been a prolific author, and 30 years ago, you wrote The Wounded Heart, and the book profoundly uh, touched me and helped me heal. But you wrote last year, Healing the Wounded Heart, and I regularly recommend that book, uh, even to to, uh, men who have not been sexually abused in their traditional understanding of I've not been molested, etc. But the book is so helpful to understand sexual brokenness. But why, why did you write not just an updated version of The Wounded Heart, but a whole new book on healing sexual abuse? Well, it, it, we know that in many ways, the life of our lives uh, is our wives. Uh, and Becky was the one who said to me, you're the one who has been teaching for 25 years material that isn't is not uh, fully uh, adumbrated in in the wounded heart why don't you write a 25 year retrospective uh and i i just didn't i just didn't want to do it it was like that that book's fine the way it is and yeah there's other material but she she was kind and 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 relentless uh and basically said you you have changed uh with regard to your understanding of warfare that alone would be the basis uh to encapsulate uh, new material uh and she said as well you know the neurobiology of of abuse is much more clear than it was when I began writing in the mid eighties so with all that yeah i I eventually relented to her wisdom, which uh probably one of the great errors of my life is even questioning for a moment her <laughs> wisdom uh but I do so over a recent couch we bought uh and uh, you know, the 25 year old couch we had seemed like, look, we probably only had another 10 or 15 years on, on the <laughs> earth. Why do we need another one? Uh, but, uh, having purchased uh, a new couch, uh, and uh, written a, a, a new book, I, I will say seldom is my wife wrong. <laughs> What's the big idea that you'd want someone to get from reading Healing the Wounded Heart, a man or woman? And by the way, you wrote a chapter just for men and sexual abuse. There's so little written about men and sexual abuse. Thank you for including that. But what would you want somebody to take away? Well, that our brains need to be honored. Um, and that uh, when we address the issues of our trauma, to ignore that trauma, uh, even trauma of our own shame, meaning our, my own sin creates trauma for me. Uh, and and that trauma doesn't excuse, uh, doesn't become a justification for sin, but it has to be taken into account in the restorative process. So to understand what trauma, uh, trauma of having been abused or the trauma of my own harm of myself and others needs to be addressed, uh, that to me is a very important chapter, particularly how trauma affects our body and our health. So I think that's one key issue. Certainly, thank you for mentioning about men. Uh, that That's a very important section and, and was a critique literally within months of the publication of The Wounded Heart back in 1988. And that was, you know, you don't deal with men. And it's like, well, at that time, 
I had not worked with many men, uh, but what I had found to be fairly consistently true with regard to men and women and abuse had enough parallel. But no, there are crucial things that need to be said uniquely for men. But I, I think maybe the, the thing that I'm, I'm most desirous for people to get from that uh, is the reality that evil intends from the harm of abuse to create certain kinds of internal and external wars. And to the degree that we do not see and name the work of evil, we are far more susceptible uh, to the uh, continuation of that harm. So bringing that back uh, into conversation, uh, well, bringing that into conversation, uh, I think is a very important part of the book. In the, uh, the groups and weekends that we do for men at Restoring the Soul, the phrase we use and I might have gotten this from John, but that that there is a uh, a living presence that hates our soul, and yes. uh, his name is evil. And to to realize that uh, has so many implications. Not that there's a devil under every bush, but that the reality of it is real. Um, and to understand that can help us to put our story in a context but also uh, to, to help us understand shame better because so much shame comes from the evil one. So talk about shame. There's been this kind of uh, renaissance or maybe for the first time uh, a new discussion, Brene Brown, Kurt Thompson. I, I kind of consider you a patriarch of writing about shame all the way back to the wounded heart and in your teaching uh, in, in your book, The Cry of the Soul. But with all that conversation, uh, just give a couple statements about what you see as important to understand about shame and how it specifically plays out in sexual brokenness and sexual compulsion. Well, and not that many would care, but I, my doctoral training was with what I considered to be the true patriarch, a, a gentleman by the name of Gershon Kaufman. So early on in my work, uh, I had that privilege of um, having Shame as a primary focus of the therapeutic process and certainly of understanding the nature of our pathology, but our brokenness. Uh, so really, I think there are two things that I would underline and it's there, you know, Kurt Thompson is just. I think a brilliant writer and one that uh, I read and profit greatly from and Brene Brown absolutely as well. But so the first is that shame is public. Uh, to me, it's a huge, important category. Most of our affect uh, can be public, but it's often private, uh, meaning you don't generally feel shame in private uh, unless you imagine somebody seeing you doing what you're doing. I felt shame in the car, but only because I was imagining if somebody were to record that and then I'm to see myself in the presence of how others see me. So in that sense, it, it's it's one of the most God-given uh, emotions. In one sense, what we can say, it's the first emotion we see in Scripture. Um, Adam and Eve experience shame. And in that shame, the natural response is hiding. So if we start with the assumption that almost all, if not all, our efforts to pose, uh, to hide, uh, to portray something about ourselves that's not true is shame-based. So as a public affect, uh, it's what in many ways clothes us to hide uh, what we know will bring us some level of approbation as a result of, of, of that experience. So if that's number one, number two is just what the scripture teaches. Our rage comes out of our shame. So the violence uh, of misogyny uh, isn't just because of some broad hatred of women. Uh, it's far darker than that. Uh, it's, it's a shame-based response to make a woman pay for the vulnerability and the neediness I feel in the presence of. Uh, and so in that sense, I'm going to turn against the one who feels like they have brought or exposed my shame. So <clears throat> if we can hold those two things together, we've got enough to be able to do great work in our marriages, to be able to say every marriage, I don't care how mature it is, has some degree of hiding and some degree of blaming. If we can erupt and disrupt that reality, that erupt, meaning bring it to name, 
so that we're actually face to face with our own effort to hide and our own effort to to scapegoat, um, then we're in a far better position to actually be humbled. And, you know, it's just a, it's a theme that you've struck several times in this interview. And I know by your writing in your life, you know, you, you didn't want to be humbled, but you were humbled. Uh, and in that humility, it, you actually found a level of relief uh, of of honor and joy that would have come by no other means right. but in that sense surrender. So you know, I mean, the testimony of of your work and your life is that it, it is in rest that we will be redeemed. Uh, that is the image of Isaiah thirty uh, Isaiah thirty one. You, you would not rest, <laughs> therefore you kept running, uh, and you will in one sense be destroyed by your own efforts to reclaim yourself. I mean, the paradox that so much of our own suffering is because we are our redemption. Uh, we are our own effort to cover ourselves versus being covered, you know, again, in the alien righteousness of Christ, uh, to, to be covered by his uh, uh, claim of us that we are beloved. Um, this is old language, uh, but it is so fundamental to how I addressed, you know, my road rage yesterday um, and how it is that, uh, you know, the day's young. I mean, this is an early morning conversation. My day spans many other conversations today. And will there be failure? Has there been failure? Will there be failure? Of course so how will I continue to participate in that humility to say, I need help um, and I need people uh, to help because I'm not going to find that that help essentially and only uh, in my relationship uh, with Jesus. I need Jesus and whom Jesus appoints to be part of that process. <clears throat> yeah, isn't it so much easier sometimes just to kind of do Jesus and us as if we could have our quiet time and, and read a, a, the new devotion and, and then not have to be vulnerable in community. Right. You know, as you talked about, uh, and thank you for referencing my story, and I would agree wholeheartedly that the, the humiliation, the humbling, the brokenness, the pain, uh, that that has all been, at this point, a gift. And I, I wouldn't necessarily wish it upon sure. others or choose it for myself, but the gift has been um, not just experiencing the, the fruit of uh, of uh, having gone to that place. But everything we're talking about, and, and this is one of the reasons why I came to study with you uh, a couple decades ago, was I was wrestling with the question, how in the world do I connect what's broken in me with this thing called the gospel? Yeah. And, and, and when we do plunge into our story and our brokenness and we make that conscious decision, what you and I have experienced is is that... Jesus and our and our faith goes from being this add-on or something we believe to something that is as essential as an oxygen tank to a scuba diver. Yes. You know, it, it, it's 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 literally a necessity, or we can't make it through. And that's my passion is to invite people into their brokenness and even even pornography struggles because it's a window into you know connecting with God and knowing him and reflecting him in a, in a way that's otherwise impossible. Well, it, it, again, it's where we, we both need to nuance, but we both know this is true that, um, that addictions of any sort, uh, at least are a passion. Um, and, and in that they are high levels of lust and anger, which means the person's in movement. Uh, and, and it's a movement toward death. Uh, but at least it's movement. Uh, uh, what what I I fear more than that level of brokenness is a person who's living an essentially good life, but ultimately self-satisfied, uh, ultimately like the life itself, watching Netflix, going out on a weekend, drinking a few beers, watching the end of the World Series, um, going on a vacation for a couple weeks a year. You know, the essence of what uh, a, a, a good middle-class life generally holds 
for the Christian community. Uh, you, you voted for the right candidate. Uh, you send your kids to the right school. You drive the right car. You get it serviced. You you even floss. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and, and then to go, uh, you know, good, good on you. Uh, may you live a good life. But I don't see generally in that kind of person the ache, the sense of I'm lost. Uh, I mean, I am lost and I must be found today. Uh, you know, and I can hear at least a, a few, a, a few good Christians saying, yeah, you sound like you're lost and you need Jesus. <laughs> uh, and the answer is I am lost. And I need Jesus desperately today, uh, at least as I'm aging. I'm getting clearer and clearer. Uh, I, I need him. Uh, I need him at levels that uh, feel so deep and intimate, and yet, at the other hand, so sweet, so sweet, that I, I, I'd go, look, if the price of being lost is knowing something of his sweetness, then let yourself be a lot more lost than you seem to be. But particularly the population you and I tend to work with already have a pretty keen sense they're lost. Yes. Um, and and that's where I think the two of us are, are lazy uh, because <laughs> we'd, we'd prefer to work with the people who are lost than to help those who are not discover that they are. Uh, and I, 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 I take that as, as a compliment to us both. Um, I, I don't have the patience or maturity to work with people who don't know that at some level they are lost. Um, and, and in that, when we are found and further found, because it's not lost to found, it's lost to further heard, further seen. Um, and, and as a result, then we're brought back to that point of going, gosh, if this is what it means to know Jesus today, I, I cannot wait, cannot wait to see what I know of him tomorrow. <clears throat> Salvation is uh, coming to Christ in that way that we talk about getting saved is really just kind of the, the, the trailhead of the path that takes us to the door to walk into yeah. the abundant life of restoration. And there's, you know, as, as you, as John, as so many other people say, that there is so much more. Dallas Willard called it a reduced gospel that, that we yeah. settle for. Hey, before we wrap up, because I know that your time is limited, I want to come back to, to one thing and then a final question. You said that shame is a God-given capacity. And, and um, I want to make sure I understand that that it's a capacity that God gave us, but that God is not the one who shames us. Jesus well, on the cross is not shaming us. No. Uh, in, in, in one sense, yes. You're, you're, you're cutting into the complexity theologically of, you know, is shame, uh, shame is primarily used by evil. Right. To, to shut us down, silence us, uh, and separate, divide us uh, internally and externally. But, but Adam and Eve felt shame even before the first encounter with God. And I think in that sense, shame is an awareness of something within us that is destitute, that, that in that, in, in their sin, they knew at levels that ontologically we can't even begin to name because we were ne we have never been pure. We have never, in one sense, been fully righteous in and of ourselves in the way that Adam and Eve were. So we have no clue what the transition is between utter holy righteousness and our own condition. We know what Adam and Eve felt after but we don't know what that transitional experience would be. We can only suppose. Um, so at least to start and to say, look, their experience of shame awakened in them a level of how empty and destitute and violent and dangerous they are and were. Uh, and so in that light, um, shame was a gift as to, you know, an engine without oil seizes and shuts down. Uh, that, that's not how the designer built the engine to seize. He built the engine to run with oil. But the absence of oil 
brings about a byproduct, and that byproduct is indeed, I would call, a gift of God. Um, but now it's also the tip of the spear for what evil uses to actually separate. So when we hold that complexity, then what we can do is to be able to say, well, Jesus took our shame. I mean, that can be said so quickly, but to let ourselves have that awareness that that he took our shame. He took it fully, which means he became shame on our behalf. That means that we as even post-fall, again, in a way that Adam and Eve didn't have the privilege. Um, they, they had the privilege of having shame engaged. They didn't have the privilege of having shame consumed by the one who is our creator and author. So in that sense, what I would say is shame today, our experience of shame today is always contrary to what God desires. <clears throat> that's, that's such a helpful clarification. Thank you. So final question, and neither one of us are, are guys that say, here's the, the three or five steps, but you wrote a book called The Healing Path, and you wrote a book called To Be Told, and so many others that spell out how to engage this process. For that man who is standing around the edge of their story and their brokenness, just wanting to, to modify their behavior, what are a couple of practical macro things to do to get started? Well, I, I, one of the first things would be write your story. Uh, and you can do that on so many levels. You can do a kind of you know, uh, in, in, in the year 1970, I experienced this sexual event. Uh, in 72, I did, you know, you can do a bit of a, you know, a lifespan orientation of, of your own sexual wars, uh, just by having it even on, you know, a decadal, let alone a year by year, you begin to name certain things. So we're back to this word name. You, you can take a story and write six to 800 words, just a story, one story of where you knew sexual violation, uh, where you knew something, uh, someone or something did harm to you. Um, uh, it, 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 what we find is, uh, and, and the research particularly about writing is when you put things onto paper, something changes in your brain. Right. So that naming process is huge. A second factor is it needs to be read. Uh, it, it, it's not just writing, but it needs to be read to at least one other human being. Uh, and I would prefer that human being be you, uh, a person who has done, has a, a calling to enter into brokenness uh, with wisdom, with strength, uh, with audacity, uh, and yet confidence that comes not by a commitment to a methodology, but to the goodness of the one who created us. So you need to read with another. And that sense of third, you need the engagement of the story you've not told. So when we tell a story, there's almost always inevitably the unsaid. Uh, and as we begin to explore what was said, but also the unsaid, uh, we begin to get a clearer picture uh, of our lives. It, first of all, that's a huge investment, uh, time, money, but far more, it's the, the fear of what I'll discover. Uh, and this is where I, as much as all of us are afraid to be discovered of how bad we are. Uh, the more significant fear uh, is, is in really how beautiful we are. Uh, and that, for the person on the exterior, just on the border of thinking about all this, has to be viewed to some degree as a, a kind of therapeutic bullshit, uh, where you just go, uh, oh, how interesting. No, that's not me. Uh, but the reality is we are all far more afraid of facing the beauty within us than indeed the brokenness. So inviting people to hold. Now, you were written to reveal the very name, the very, very being of God. Now, will you let us explore in your life how your life was uniquely meant to reveal something of the goodness of God? Uh, I think becomes... Um, beautifully terrifying 
uh, uh, humbling but holy. Uh, and that's that's the task. Do you know that humility will take you to a holiness of joy? Well, if so, uh, then whatever you're doing, I don't care if you're a multimillionaire or you literally sweep floors, uh, there is such a life ahead for you that you couldn't begin to imagine. Come join us. Amen. Dan, thank you for your uh, for your time and your heart uh, conversation with you and hearing you speak is always incredibly stimulating and provocative. And I'm going to have to go and unpack this and spend some time in solitude. Uh, this is going to encourage so many people. Thank you. Uh, and we'll talk again. Michael, of course. Love being with you again. Thank you so much. Bye bye. So we've wrapped up another episode of Restoring the Soul. We want you to know that Restoring the Soul is so much more than a podcast. In fact, the heart of what we have done for nearly 20 years is intensive counseling. When you can't wait months or years to get out of the rut you're in, our intensive counseling programs in Colorado allow you to experience deep change in half-day blocks over two weeks. To learn more, visit RestoringTheSoul.com. That's RestoringTheSoul.com.